Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com physician reading website. On our show last week, we talked about the place to go for the top, most high-tech medical care you can find, the Academic Medical Center, the place where new doctors are being trained, where the cutting-edge research is being done to advance medical knowledge, where clinical care for both run-of-the-mill and the rarest diseases can be found. On today's show, we're looking at another aspect of our uh, medical system altogether, the small-town medical practice, you know, the family physician who's practicing in a small town. And we have on our show Dr. John Dykers. He practiced in small-town America, Siler City, North Carolina, for about 50 years. John, welcome to the program today. Thank you so much for being on. You're very welcome. uh, It sounds like it's going to be fun. You know, we've had so many guests who've been... Oh, you know, the president of the AMA, um, head of some federal agency, talking about the health care system. But one thing we haven't done on the show before is is talk about what happens day to day in small town American medical practices. And and you practiced in um, in, in Siler City for how long? Since 1964. Since 1964. Yep. Tell me a little bit about what your practice was like. And some of the natives are beginning to think I was going to stay till I retired on like a few months ago. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I uh, had uh, three uh, colleagues, uh, Dr. Dugan and Dr. White and Dr. Parker, and uh, we practiced together in the same building and had a lab together. And uh, initially, uh, we took turns uh, covering for each other. And we also had to uh, do the backup coverage at the emergency room in, uh, at Chatham Hospital. And uh, finally, we worked around, worked the system out where we, uh, we had just one backup through the emergency room. And then over the years, that evolved a bit. One of the funny stories is that this was before cell phones. That's right. Oh, yeah. And uh, we had... Uh, uh, things like party lines and you could have several extensions and we had one nighttime phone number and we each had a plug in our in our each in our own home and so that if folks uh, rang our nighttime number uh, whoever was on call for that night uh, kept his phone plugged in and uh, was responsible for for answering the calls that night Oh, you know, I, I take cell phone technology for granted now that I'm on call. Things were different. Yeah. 
and uh, O'Pagers were came in there, of course, for a while. But uh, that was a real aggravation. I'd be out on the far end of the farm, uh-huh. and the pager would go off, and I'd have to go, oh, a mile and a half or so to get to the telephone, get to the telephone and call in, tell somebody yes or no, <laughs> and then go a mile and a half back to the tractor to finish what I was doing. John, I, I know you're exceptional in many ways, but... Um... Was it common for a, a, a full-time family physician to also be responsible for their own farm? Well, no, that wasn't really common. Uh, but they, everybody uh, did have their other interests and, and things to do, so uh, they had the same kinds of interruption. One of the real funny stories about that is, as I say, there were four others. And uh, when uh, Mike or Frank or I were on call, uh, Earl used to keep his phone plugged in just so he could listen to it ring and see how long it took us to answer the Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, my. So uh, that's uh, that's when I learned to answer the phone with my name. I'd say, uh, you know, this is, i pick up the phone and say, this is Dr. Dykers, because sometimes the patients were calling in and they wanted to talk to one of us as an individual, and they didn't really want to talk to the other guy. So if you said who you were to start with, uh, they could just uh, hang up and not have to be rude and mm-hmm. say, well, I didn't really want to talk to you. I wanted to talk to Dr. Dugan or whatever. So uh, it was a, uh, a different set of circumstances. You know, I work now at a major uh, medical center, and um, I guess if somebody had a heart problem, they might, instead of seeing their primary care doctor, they, they might see a cardiologist, or rather than see a cardiologist, they might see a a cardiac electrophysiologist, or maybe among the cardiac electrophysiologists, they might pick up one who, who, who specializes in a particular area of cardiac electrophysiology. I, I assume that your hospital there in Siler City probably didn't have that level of of, of specialty care available for folks? Well, we certainly didn't to uh, start with. Uh, uh, Mike Dugan was our engineer type when we first uh, got the monitors. Because uh, I remember when we first built a, a coronary care unit. Uh, and all the only real difference was, was having a monitor so you could monitor uh, heart function regularly. So the family physician was was also in charge of the coronary care unit. So we took turns being in charge of the coronary care unit, or we were in charge, really, of our own patients that were in the coronary care unit. And uh, our nurses, uh, Dorothy Eford, particularly, I used to say in those days, I said, if, if I have my heart attack, I want Dorothy to take care of me. Uh, and because uh, she was there so much of the time and had gotten so much experience. And that's, that's the trade-off you're talking about, uh, the trade-off of having somebody that's coordinating things and, and has an overview as the primary care person uh, versus the, the value of someone with a lot of experience with a particular problem because that's what they, they do all the time. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's still a dilemma. Uh, now we're... We're beginning to see the dilemmas about uh, uh, sleep deprivation for a 
attending physicians, for example. And that creates uh, a whole new set of uh, possibilities and options and, and problems you think for uh, trading off, uh, passing a patient from one person who's in charge of the care to the next person, for example, and having hospitalist service instead of uh, being cared for by your primary care physician. Uh, maybe you could explain that in more detail. Are you are you talking about the sleep deprivation of the specialists or the sleep deprivation of the primary care doctors in a small town who have to deal with everything? Well, I, I, right then I was thinking about the sleep deprivation of the primary care physician. Yeah. Who I used to have to get up in the middle of the night and run deliver a baby at 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, come back home and maybe get an hour of sleep before having to be back at the office. And... Uh, I used to have a, a jumpsuit hanging in the closet. Matter of fact, it's still there. That I called my "Go deliver the baby quick" suit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could just jump in that and run straight to the hospital uh, and deliver the baby. But uh, uh, and that's where some of the real uh, adventures took place. That I, when we were talking about uh, what particular things happened. And the first one on my list was the time we diagnosed a placenta previa. I think it was a previa, not an abruptio, but they're but so close to the same thing. For, for our lay audience, you, you're probably going to have to explain, and even for me, you're going to have to explain in more detail what you mean by that. Well, the placenta starts coming first is what it amounts to, mm-hmm. and it, or it begins to separate before the baby's born. And it'll kill you in a hurry, kill mama in a hurry, and the baby too, because... Uh, uh, it bleeds profusely, and uh, it's probably the truest uh, real emergency in obstetrics. Uh, and uh, I had a woman start to bleed one day over on the floor there at Chatham Hospital, and this was back in the 60s or early 70s sometime, and I called my backup surgeon, and uh we started started to the emergency room. I started to the operating room, rather, and uh, we had her sectioned and the baby delivered in less than 30 minutes. And uh, you'd have a hard time doing that at Chapel Hill now to get somebody rolled down the hall and in the OR and delivered that fast. So it was really rather amazing how well that worked that time. Who did the C-section? Our backup general surgeon. The general surgeon, so not, yeah. not an OBGYN doctor. No, he was a general surgeon. And uh, <laughs> the same fellow came in one night. I, was, I had a, 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 a breach delivery. I had a breach that wouldn't deliver. And she kept uh, straining. And I said, uh, we're going to have to do something about this. This lady's not making any progress. We've got a fanny presenting down here. And I called him over there, and he came to the hospital, and he reached in and examined a little while. He said, oh, she'll deliver, and he left. And we struggled along for another couple of hours and called him back again, and the same thing happened. And as his feet were clicking down the hall, I said to my nurse, I said, uh-uh, we got to do something, or we're going to lose a baby and a mama. Uh here most any minute 
and I reached up inside the uterus and found the baby's foot was in its mouth. And I took the foot out of the mouth and did an internal total version and extraction. You may need that. Uh, that's fancy talk for pulling the feet down, twisting the baby inside the uterus, and getting both feet out and delivering it as a footling breach. Uh, and got the baby out and ended up with a live baby and a live mama. But, that's great. Uh, nobody, you know, nobody would do that anymore. Uh, we could now, we would have C-sectioned her just because she was a breech presentation. But that was before we had uh, ultrasound, but we couldn't uh, ultrasound everybody. And the only time we ever x-rayed anybody uh, was when we thought we might have a real narrow pelvis and we wanted to get a measurement of the proportion, the size of the head and the size of the pelvis, uh, which we would do with a plain x-ray. Uh, so it was kind of, uh, it was a lot trickier. You know, because, I, of, because of that, one time I had twins, and I didn't know they were twins. Huh. I delivered one baby, and before I said, I was reaching out a check after the, for the third stage of labor, delivered the placenta, I said, uh-oh, we've got another baby in here. Wow. And uh, uh, those twins are running around Siler City right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, what's impressive yeah. is whether whether you're talking about obstetric care or or your heart problem, just the degree of comprehensiveness of the medical care that you would provide in your setting. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, it was. Um, the first uh, uh, IV pacemaker, uh, I put it in here at Chatham Hospital. Uh, somebody else had tried first to come down and try to do it and couldn't get it in, and so... I said, well, let me have a go at it, and I uh, wiggled it up and slid it in and, and just happened to get lucky and get it embedded in the ventricle and began pacing somebody who had a arrhythmia. You did some other things. You were the medical examiner for your town? Yeah, yeah. I served as a medical examiner and uh, uh, seen some terrible increase in uh, traumatic deaths and things that are medical examiner cases. Well, a lot of them are automobile, but an awful lot of homicides as well. Yeah. And and people talk about, you know, improving the system of care and, and quality and, and uh, you know, I think of things that, that could be done. Is, but, but you're probably, like, single-handedly responsible or you and a small cadre of doctors in your community for doing that sort of thing. I, I think of what you have told me in the past about um, providing uh, nurse midwife services in the community along those lines. Yeah, we had the first nurse midwifery service uh, here, uh, and then that had to be terminated when we lost our, our obstetrician. Uh, but the obstetrician came after I had been uh, supervising the midwifery service for a while. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Fellman. We're speaking today with Dr. John Dykers, family physician from small-town America, Siler City, North Carolina. Well, John, let's talk about the American medical system for a little bit. Um, 
how well does it function in giving health care and supporting health care in the small town communities? Well, when you talk about, quote, quote, the system, you're, you're really talking about uh, how care is paid for uh, is one aspect. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, it's, a, it's chaos right now. And that's what all of the hoopla is about, is that we've got this crazy mixture of uh, a totally a, a non-system. And I think uh, most of the folks who uh, think about this seriously in terms of uh, quality and better care know we're eventually going to have to go to a single-payer system. And the problem is that we have so many other people that are involved in making their living off of the delivery of health care right now that how do you make the transition? Because if you make a transition that actually improves the quality and costs less, there are not going to be any magic bullets uh, that do that. It's going to mean that uh, some people are there are going to be have to be fewer people employed in the non-productive, non-contributory parts of the quote the present system. There are lots of people that have jobs that don't do a thing for you know helping us patients uh, have better care, and uh, some of them are even obstructive. Some might just be classified as hangers-on. Uh, and if you have a, a simplified payment system, uh, you know, they shouldn't be part of it. They're, they're going to get left out. And so how do you wean this away from the uh, employer-provided uh, private health care? And private health insurance is, by definition, an oxymoron in, in health care. Uh, the basic premise that we have is that the physician is supposed to put the patient's interest ahead of their own. And uh, so you don't want a hungry physician who's not doing that. Physicians ought to be well-paid so they don't have to get greedy and hopefully don't get lazy. Uh, but uh, uh, private for-profit health insurance company has a fiduciary responsibility to its stockholders to make money. And uh, if its uh, primary responsibility is to make money, it's not its primary responsibility to deliver low-cost, high-quality health care. Those are just, uh, as I say, it's an oxymoron. Those are just irreconcilable uh, differences. They just don't. They don't fit together. So, John, I, I want to understand how, how it worked in Siler City. Um, were you ever paid in chickens or anything like that? <laughs> well, I have been paid in kind from time to time. That didn't happen often, but uh, there were lots of times uh, patients would uh, knit me a shawl or fix me some potholders or uh, paint me a picture, do all sorts of uh, nice things like that. I have a matter of fact... Uh, Shawl I wear to the Carolina basketball games, and one of my patients did it for me. It's just beautiful. 
And sometimes that was a primary payment form, but that's... Uh, and Medicare and Medicaid was was probably most of the practice? And, well, Medicare, I actually practiced before Medicare, uh, not long, but I remember my first Medicare patient. And she's a real uh, example in waste. Uh, very nice lady, uh, the widow of a physician, as a matter of fact, uh, who was uh, living on... Uh, relatively small margin economically and uh, she had a, a fungal uh, pneumonia and uh, so the the real the only really hard work was uh, making the diagnosis in the first place and getting her started on some amphotericin B but she had to be hospitalized for that because we gave the amphotericin B IV and and we monitored her occasionally about blood counts and so forth. But uh, after the first day, and this is at a time, by the way, when uh, office visits were $4. So uh, you have to put that in perspective. Uh, but I remember her very well. And, uh, you know, I say once we got the diagnosis done and the dose figured out and started, my visits each day were primarily... Uh, how you doing and just uh, social support and uh, listen to the lungs and go on. It wasn't a, a major uh, event. Uh, then three or four days I'd have to check a blood count and so forth. But anyway, she was in the hospital a couple of weeks with all of that process at that time. And so I had my first Medicare bill to fill out and I figured, okay, all right, hospital admissions. Uh, I've forgotten now, but it was, you know, like maybe five or ten dollars at the time. And uh, I figured, okay, my most of the time was just a pleasant visit, and uh, the real work I did, I sent in a. Are we still there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I sent in a bill that said uh, professional services rendered. Oh, $125 maybe, $100. I've forgotten exactly now. And they sent it back to me and said that wouldn't do. I had to itemize. So when I itemized, you know, every time I went there and made a visit and so forth, it was $350. And so I sent in the $350 bill itemized, and they paid it. So uh, it was a very uh, in inflationary event. And I didn't feel bad about it at all because the stuff that Medicare was requiring me to do was a bunch of crap that didn't have a thing to do with taking care of this nice lady. And it was all a pain in the neck, not a professionally rewarding pleasure. And uh, if they had to pay for that, that didn't bother me in the least. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the problem, that so much of what we do is just junk work instead of, uh, as I say, the professionally rewarding uh, adventures of taking care of sick folks. Was Medicaid a similar issue for you? 
uh, by the time Medicaid came along, you know, we were sort of used to it, but we were in an entirely different uh, uh, mode of operation by then. Uh, uh, you know, we were getting used to third parties paying for everything and, uh, and dealing with all of that. Did you have much insured? I would imagine there would be a large contingent of uninsured folks in a small town. And there still are, and perhaps even more so now because the insurance is employer-based and so many folks are out of work. But for the longest time, I noticed that my office visit charges parallel the cost of a first-class stamp. Uh, when I was charging $4 for an office visit, a first-class stamp was $0.04. Cents. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they sort of went up parallel until, uh, oh, I guess 15, 20 years or so ago, uh, they began to diverge because there were so many other uh, uh, costs associated with delivering medical care because we we have become the employer of last resort. There are so many people that have jobs in, in quote, quote, medical care, uh, but they're doing the, uh, I'm being pejorative, I call it junk work. Uh, it's, it's they're honest people doing an honest job, uh, but it's just dealing with the bureaucracy of how you get paid for the doctor-patient encounter. And it's terribly wasteful. It's, it's ridiculous. It turns out that it's, uh, it's gotten so bad with all the other people that Medicare is now probably the most efficient uh, third-party payer. Uh, they have the lowest uh, administrative costs of money delivered of uh, probably anybody around. So then you're, not, you're saying that that's not showing how good Medicare is. That's showing how poor everything else is? Yeah. Uh, very well said. That's exactly right. What What about um, the the folks who just aren't covered at all? Are they getting medical care in a small town? Yeah, everybody always gets care somehow. The way things have happened now, the way it's evolved, is that the law, of course, requires that anybody who presents to the emergency room has to be evaluated. And so... The folks that have the least amount of money and that are broke and no coverage, their last last resort is to go to the emergency room, which is the most expensive form of care that we have. Because the people in the emergency room uh, may not know, probably don't know them at all, or else they they may go there all the time, so they do get to know them. But uh, then the people in the emergency room, the the doctors that are delivering care, they're rotating around so much that uh, they don't develop any relationship. So uh, everybody that comes in has to be treated as a stranger. And there's a lot of difference between treating somebody who's a total stranger and you've got to start from scratch and cover all the bases and all the possibilities because that's the other big aspect of medical care is the fear of litigation and malpractice and uh, CYA. Uh, you, you may not be, but 
thousand that uh, uh, time somebody's bumped their head that they've got a fracture, but you don't want to be the one. Uh, one in a million doesn't matter if you're the one. Yep. Well, yeah, it, it sounds like the opposite of, of what you were providing, which is delivering people, treating them until they uh, until they grew old and were under your care in the coronary care unit. Right. Yeah, I knew them all their lives. And matter of fact, that was one of the hard parts for me of uh, giving up obstetrics, uh, which I had to do when malpractice insurance got so outrageously expensive. I wasn't delivering a whole lot of babies. And so, you know, I was 40, 50, 60 a year. Uh, and there wasn't any way I could uh, carry uh, malpractice coverage uh, and spread it over no more than 60 babies a year. Uh, the cost of my delivering the care would be absurd. Uh, yeah. So that was, <clears throat> I, I hated to give up delivering babies because it balanced out the emotional part of medicine that was involved in helping people die. It was kind of nice to help them get born, too. Well, yeah. So emotionally, it was uh, uh, a big loss not to deliver babies anymore. But I did get more sleep. <laughs> and uh, everything a, is a trade-off. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was certainly one of them. Well, John, and the other part of that trade-off is then those people that I was delivering uh, were, had to be delivered by somebody who delivered three or four or five hundred a year. And so uh, they obviously would have more experience. And, uh, but uh, uh, none of them will have done an internal potal version and extraction, yeah. and I'm glad of it. Yeah. All right, John, I promise to have you back for another show soon. Before I let you go today, you have any final thoughts for our listeners on how they can get better health care? Or have now better health. They can get better health care. Yeah. Or, I don't know. I'm looking for a doctor myself right now. <laughs> Fair enough. All <laughs> yeah. right. Thanks so much for joining me today. Okay. When you come next time, I'll tell you about the baby that was born with all its bowels lying out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Talk to you again, Steve. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I think different people may have different experiences, but I'll tell you, I've been... Well, most of my medical career has been practiced in the academic medical setting, but every time I've gotten out and seen what happens outside of academics, um, in private practice in big cities or, you know, working in a, a small-town doctor's office, I'm just always amazed at the, the dedication of the, of the people in practice, of physicians in practice, and what they do for their communities. I think John Diker's... Uh, Dr. John uh, epitomizes uh, the role of the family physician in a community, uh, taking on major responsibilities, not just, you know, a small area of a, of a small specialty like what I do, but really taking a great responsibility for people's lives. And, and I think uh, he points out the trade-off that, you, you know, if you, you came to see me for, you know, a psoriasis skin problem, well... You know, I have a tremendous amount of expertise in that one little narrow area. And, um, and Dr. Dykers, um, he may not have that much experience in that fine area, but uh, he knows his patients well. Uh, they grew up with him. 
Uh, he provides them a much more comprehensive kind of care than I can do. There's advantages and disadvantages. And, um, you know, that's um, something that I find very beautiful and interesting, um, the, the amount of variation there is in life and in our healthcare care system. And some may consider that a weakness. It, it may in some ways be a strength of our system. Well, that's our program for today. I want to thank you for joining us again. I hope you'll join us next time. Uh, Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com, drscore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.